Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome to Food & Wine's Tinfoil Swans, a weekly podcast serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, and revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and we hope giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I am eternally fascinated by how successful and creative people become well, themselves. What are the moments, influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions, big and small, that got them where they are today? There's this thing that people say about how you should never meet your heroes. And hey, maybe that's true in some cases, but when it comes to modern Joffrey, it couldn't be further from the truth. No one in the world has had more of an influence on my love for food than this absolute legend. There may be no one else in the world who's had a bigger influence on how people outside of Indian culture understand and appreciate the bounty and the beauty of its wildly diverse cuisine. When she published An Invitation to Indian Cooking in 1973, she had absolutely no idea what a big impact this book would make and that 50 years later, it would still be in print and even getting an anniversary reissue. Mother Jeffrey turned... 90, just a couple days before we recorded this, and I have to be completely honest, I woke up shaking at the notion of getting to sit down with this incredible human being for the first time to talk about her career as a film and TV star, cookbook author, memoirist, and cultural ambassador. But I met my hero, and I cannot wait for you to listen to our conversation. Welcome to season one, episode 12 of Tinfoil Swans, Madhur Joffrey and the Trap of Perfection. I cannot tell you how lucky I feel getting to talk to you. Anybody who works with me knows that I woke up with a panic attack this morning because (laughs) honestly, I've wanted to tell you this for a long time, but I don't think there's anybody in the world who has had more of an impact and effect on my love of food and the reason that I do this for a living. (laughs) So to get to talk with you is a huge, huge honor. Oh, thank you. Thank you hugely. I've told this story to other people, but I came home from church when I was maybe 10 years old. And my dad did the cooking on Sundays because my mother ran the religious program there. And I walked in and the house just smelled different than it ever had before. And I say it was like the moment in The Wizard of Oz when everything goes from black and white to color. And he bought this. This is an audio medium, so I folks can't see it, but it is your world of the East vegetarian cooking. And it changed everything in my house and made me curious about food. So I... Well, tell me what he'd cook. I'm curious to know. Do you remember? I do, very vividly. And also, I was trying to see what pages this flips open to <laughs> most easily. It is noodles, pancakes, and breads, cold noodles with the peanut sauce. I love those things to this day. As well, you should. You wrote this for the ages. <laughs> and there was a spice rice with nuts and raisins. I remember them. And I remember, I think my kids were going to college. And they said, give us some recipes to take. So I said, take this, take that. And I gave them some books. But they wanted one particular recipe. And they've been making it for years. And it was a mixed recipe that I created. It wasn't vegetarian. It was a pork chops 
But then I added soy sauce and ginger and all kinds of other things and make it slightly Asian and slightly Indian. It was spicy, but it was slightly Asian. And that's what they took to college, I remember, with them. I've done all my homework for lo these many years about you. And you essentially, as I understand it, started to cook out of homesickness, but by writing to your mother. Right. So I was in London. I was about 20 years old. And I was at a drama school, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And I remember the canteen was five floors up. So you walked up five floors. And then you got the sea through roast beef that was so very gray and got these <laughs> potatoes that were overwatery and gray and cabbage that was gray. And I would, oh my God, I can't eat this. And then I would <laughs> dream of my mother's cooking. And so I thought, you know, I can't cook, but I can write to her. So I wrote her air letters and said, please, please teach me how to cook. And she sent me back air letters. There was those flimsy air letters at that time. And in it, she wrote three line recipes, take little cauliflower, take a little potato, brown them, and then put some these spices in them and cook till done. Till done. <laughs> so it was those three line recipes. But the funny thing was, and I realized this so much later, that I remember the taste of what I'd eaten. And that is food memory, which I now consider very important. So if you can remember what it tasted like, it's not so hard to recreate it, even with three lines given as a hint. You can take that hint and develop it because then it fills in a lot of blanks in your food memory and you can create it. So that was a discovery, but that came many, many years later. But at that time, I was able to do it somehow. That also came from having grown up eating these things from your mother. And I just I think it's fascinating. I grew up with these tastes translated by my dad as written. By... Right. So you've got a triple image of them in a way. Yes, it is. And the thing about the book also is that it caused us to go around looking for the ingredients because I was growing up in suburban Kentucky. Good grief, yes, yes. <laughs> and as I understand it also, when you were living in London, maybe some of these ingredients, how hard were they for you to find? Strangely enough, not hard because there was a shop called Bombay Emporium that was very near my drama school. So I could actually, after drama school, I could go there pick up the stuff and take it home and try cooking with it. England is very strange. I mean, they were part of India for so long. And they loathed India and loved India at the same time. It was a love-hate relationship between both sides were the same. We hated and loved them and they hated and loved us. And we liked certain aspects of them which we ate. And we hated other aspects of the British rule, the British Raj, which we hated. So it was that kind of relationship, but it was intense. It was an intense relationship. And we remember it to this day, and we still survive in that kind of intense love-hatred relationship. So nothing is forgotten, in a way. Everything is remembered, but it has its own layers and colorings, I would say, because of our own particular experiences. I feel almost ashamed that it's only through recent pop culture that I've come to have any knowledge of and understanding of partition and what all of that meant. I was watching Ms. Marvel and very vivid description of it. And you have written about living 
through that. And I can imagine that is such a huge part of the hate and the feeling the pain. It is because they were cruel. The British were cruel in the way they just parted India into bits and pieces. There was Pakistan to the right of us, Pakistan to the left of us. Later became one, became Bangladesh. They just divided us hither and thither. People were getting onto trains to go to another part and then they were attacked and killed. And then people were coming from the Pakistani side to us and they were attacked and killed. Everyone was killing everybody else and they gave people a chance to have a field day in killing and they just washed their hands of it. Okay, let it be over and then we part, we've gone. We've done our bit. But they left us in such a bad way and all of us, it's part of our lives, it's part of our hearts and brains, whatever happened, for those of us who remember who were alive at the time of partition. It feels like that's got to be a deep psychic wound that passes down through generations. Yes, people, especially from the Punjab who came to India, I know their stories. The other side, I don't know their stories because we don't know what happened. My friends who went to Pakistan, I later went to Pakistan and looked for some of them. I didn't find any. It's just hard. It's very hard. But you just sort of be cut off in a bad way that the British encouraged. So on that subject, I have no good feelings on the British, but I do on others. I like their books. <laughs> and you also do like their music, because I was just listening to a 1985 Desert Island Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> recorded. Colin Davis was a good friend of ours. He was a British conductor, and we adored him, and we saw him often. We cooked Indian food for him when he was here. So we have our own funny relationship with the British. I'm working on a story right now that has to do with my husband's family and his aunt having to leave her place very suddenly in the middle of the night because it burned down. I actually have her cookbooks and some of her recipes that made it through the fire and they're singed, but I have them. When you're forced away from your home, how do you keep those parts of you alive and those parts of your culture? And especially where that intersects with food, how do you keep that with you? I don't know. I mean, I wasn't in that position. I never had to leave my home. Mm -hmm. I left voluntarily because I wanted to go to the West. Mm -hmm. So it was a a thoughtful, meaningful decision for me. I wasn't thrown out. But for those who were, who had this awful choice of going to Pakistan or, or coming from what was now Pakistan into India, that must have been very hard. I think the Pakistanis chose it more easily. More of the Indians hated the partition. More of the Pakistanis wanted it because they wanted a land for themselves. They thought India was not fair to them, and they may be right. India may not have been fair to them, because look at India now. I mean, we are certainly not fair to Muslims and Christians at the moment, but we are whatever we are. We are a country that's growing and becoming a, a hopefully a great grand country. But I hope we learn as we go along. The tolerance of for other people is so important. It is really imperative that we care for all the people that are in our country. This is extremely true. How old were you when this all occurred? I must have been in around 12, 13 when the partition happened. So it was a very vulnerable time. But I went everywhere. I listened to Gandhi. I went to see when India, the Independence Day, I went to the place where the flag was put up and people threw their hats in the air and everything else. I watched Gandhi being cremated. I walked to that place. 
So I am a part of all that. I remember Gandhi being shot and everybody coming out of their houses onto the lanes outside that connected us to other people and saying, my God, what a terrible thing has happened. What an awful thing has happened. And commiserating with all our neighbors who also came out into the street. So, I mean, these are deep memories. They're not good memories. They are, in a way, some bad memories. But they're so deep inside us that they are part of us now. At that point, because I know you didn't come to cooking until later. What did you want for yourself at that age? When you were young, when you were 10 years old, what did you see that you wanted for yourself? I think I wanted to do something with my life, but I didn't know what. I know that very early I knew I didn't want to end up like my mother, just being a housewife. I wanted to be more than that. It wasn't clear to me how I would do that. So very early on, we had a lady who was a doctor. We called her a lady doctor because she was a lady and a doctor. (laughs) And she was very much fighting for independence at that time and was a part of the Congress party that was fighting for independence. So she wore all khadi, which is hand-loomed cloth, saris. And she smelt of disinfectant. And she was such a good doctor. And she went around both working and fighting for independence. So I said, I want to be a doctor, only because she was doing something. And then when I was in school, we had in school a girl. She was half Jewish, half Muslim. And she was a blonde. She was a total blonde from her mother's side. And she would swear and curse and paint like Picasso, not like we were being taught to paint in bold, splashy colors. And I wanted to be a painter. I thought, this is what I want to be. I think it's the breaking from the traditional role of the woman that I was yearning for, though it took many forms before I got to the one I found. But it was just, I cannot be like my mother. I adored my mother, but I was not going to be like her. I was going to do something with my life. And I was copied different people at different times. But then eventually I found what I wanted to do. How did you find that it takes a certain amount of bravery to step away from the familiar and the expected. Were there people in your life who modeled that for you or who encouraged you in this? Or were people saying, no, no, you have to fall in line? There was no one. My mother suggested arranged marriage for me. I said no. And then she didn't push it anymore. She just said, okay, if you don't want it, you don't want it. (laughs) I was the fifth child. And my older sister who was thoroughly educated. She lives in England now. She's such an intellectual. I'm not. She is. And she took over my life in a way of suggesting things to me and helping me when I was all agitated and didn't know what to do. She would suggest things, do this, do that. And I trusted her more because she had the same background as I did, not my mother. My mother had not gone to school beyond the eighth grade because they said she was so pretty. She was white. Her skin was so white that they said, oh, she's she's pretty. India, if you're white, you're pretty. So she was light-skinned, so light-skinned, like a milk and honey complexion. Everybody thought she'll find a good husband anyway. We don't have to educate her. So she was educated only until the eighth grade. And after she died, we found all these medals and pins that she'd won for scholarship. But nobody cared then. 
So she was married off to my father, who came from a wealthy family. So she was like, did so well for herself, being so light-skinned. So, you know, that was her aim in life, to please my father. And she was a wonderful wife to my father and adored her. So we had that in the background, this lovely relationship of our parents all the way through. So I just felt freer, with my sister's help, to do what I wanted to do, whatever it kept changing. So very much acting. <laughs> and very much acting. So I started acting very, very early, but didn't think of it as a profession until much later. I started acting when I was five, but it didn't become a profession until much later. We will be back with more from Mother Joffrey after the break. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I am chatting with Mother Joffrey. When you're five, what kind of work are you doing at that age? There were musical concerts in our school. So one was the Pied Piper of Hamelin, and I was the brown mouse. <laughs> My first role at five was a brown mouse. And I remember that in the intermission, they gave us hot chocolate. It was wonderful. But I loved acting. I loved getting away from who I was. I didn't like myself too much. Why is that? I don't know. I never did like myself. I don't know if people talk about this often enough, but it's a lot of work to come around to liking yourself and accepting yourself. Yeah, I don't know if I've still done it. It's hard. It's a work in progress. Yes. It's a balance, I feel like, being a person who wants to do things and achieve things and you know what you don't want to do, but then having that nagging thing in your head about like not liking yourself and second guessing. Do you have a way of silencing that voice? Not a good way. I don't know it. I mean, I try all the time, but I'm really so upset with myself for being such a not nice person all the time. I say I could be kinder, I could be this, I could be more patient, I could be more this, but I don't achieve it quite. Is it your own voice telling you that or do you hear someone else's voice? For me, a lot of it is the nuns from my <laughs> elementary school. Your nuns. I had nuns too because we were all sent to Catholic schools, you know. No, it's not the nuns' voices so much. It's my own voice. I know what I am. And I know I could be much better. And is this something where you feel like it's something that you want to keep working on or just accept about yourself? Because we're never all going to get there. No, we are not. And I think <laughs> the thing is not be too hard on oneself and not to be too hard on other people. Do you allow yourself to appreciate all of the things that you've achieved? Because let's go through the laundry list here. You've written some globally changing cookbooks, one of which is going to have its 50-year anniversary reissue. You've made incredible films. You have taught people to cook. You have done incredible things with your life. Are you able to take that in and allow yourself to enjoy or process that? Not much. <laughs> Not much. You've achieved all these things, but you had moved to London. You're at RADA. You're studying. Talk to me about getting into that school and deciding, hey, this is what I'm going to do seriously. What happened was that in India, we had just become independent and India didn't have very much foreign currency. So they couldn't give us foreign exchange to go and study anywhere. So we had to get scholarships. That was the only way. So I was trying to get scholarships, and I remember doing a play called Otto da Fe, 
which is the one act by Tennessee Williams. And we were doing it on the stage. I was part of a theatrical group. And we were doing this play. And various people came to see it, including the British consul. So then he said, oh, we'll give her a scholarship. And then they suggested me to Radha. So Radha said, we'll give you a scholarship, but you have to come here and audition first. So I went to England. I did an audition. And then I was accepted. And that's how I got in. What I also really love is that you have been on a bunch of sitcoms in recent years. I remember when you showed up on New Girl. (laughs) Yes, that was fun with all these young girls. My goodness, I had such a good time with them. I was listening to a podcast with one of the actors on it, and she was saying that she couldn't believe that they had gotten you. And she was just kind of losing her mind about that. But you were recently in And Just Like That. And I know that you are fundamental to the Merchant Ivory relationship as well. Yeah, we started out together. We were all in New York at the same time. And then we all planned to do a film together. And we used to sit in Jim's apartment on the floor and write out Shakespeare while as we imagined it. But it changed later on, became a different Shakespeare Waller, but that's how we all started out. And we were all young and so hopeful and so happy and so excited to just get going, all of us together. It was a happy time. It's an amazing thing when you're young and you're not afraid of failing at things in the same kind of way that the same eyes aren't on you and you have room to mess up and try new things. Yeah, exactly. And I remember I just had my 90th birthday and my children put up photographs of me through the ages, as it were. And there's a very young photograph of me and Ismail Merchant. And we are bicycling in Central Park. It's such a lovely picture of the two of us Young, hopeful, ready to go. I was rereading some of the opening to an invitation to Indian cooking. And that is an intimidating thing to do, to sort of as a person who has learned to cook from letters, to decide, okay, I am going to make this this living document of Indian food and my particular version of Indian food. You see, I'll tell you something. I never thought of all that. Somebody just said, would you write a cookbook about Indian food? I didn't know much. I know only the food of Delhi. I hadn't traveled through India. I was an ignoramus completely, but enthusiastic (laughs) ignoramus. And so I sat down and wrote this book just as I would be talking to you, just telling you my story. This is what I cook. And this is how I imagined it happened. And I think if I was casting my imagination, it would be David Niven going to India (laughs) and saying, my good man, cook me up some (laughs) Indian curry. So I just put it down as I was thinking about it, not with any thought of the future or the public reading it. I just put it down as I thought it should go in my mind. And there it was. That's such an incredible thing, like that beauty and that freedom. Like our restaurant editor, Kushbu Shah, is amazing. And she's writing this book about aunties and Indian cooking. And she just knows that everybody is going to come in with their opinions. Yeah, of course. So when your book came out, what did you hear? I never thought about that because I know the aunties will say, oh, this is no good at all. What did she do? (laughs) She put so much turmeric. You can hardly (laughs) eat it. 
we all criticize each other. But I never thought about that. I said, this is what I want to write. And I tested because I'm ignorant. And I said, I can't make any of these things except by learning. I must teach the way I learned. So I explain everything. This is what I've done since the beginning. And I think that's why my books sell. That I explain this is what it should look like. Cook it for about six minutes on a medium heat, and this is what it should look slightly browned. So people know what they're aiming for, and just as I would like to know what I'm aiming for, otherwise I wouldn't be able to cook it. So I write like an ignoramus, because I am one, and I tell people in detail, and I think that's why my books sell, because people can actually make the things and get it as close to what I want it. If I can do it, then they can do it. That's my feeling. I feel like the word invitation was really key in there as well, because it was for families like mine. My parents hadn't grown up eating anything outside of very colloquial, middle-of-the-road, post-wartime American food. And we didn't have any sort of metric for that. Once my dad bought your book, we started going around to restaurants and seeking it out. I wrote about this in Food Moine a few months ago, where I was saying your boti kebabs, recipes like that, they made us leave our house and the stores we usually went to because in the 1970s and 80s in northern Kentucky and Cincinnati, we had to go digging a little bit. Where did you go? There were some Indian restaurants around that had little shops attached to them. And then this place opened up Jungle Gyms. Oh. We had to drive maybe 45 minutes to get to. And it was an international food importer. And they had everything that we were looking for and, and need from all different cuisines around the world. And so we started just roaming the aisles and, and getting things, but clutching our copies of your cookbook. It wasn't like we could take a picture with our phone or anything. So <laughs> scribbling down the list, but sometimes, like, you know, bringing the books to it. But what did you start hearing from people once the book was out in the world? Well, you know, the funny thing is I got a lot of letters and they were from either young Indians who were not didn't know how to cook and were following the book now, or they were from young Americans and Brits who had started cooking for the first time and said, we didn't know we could make it at home. I remember I used to do my cookery television show on one day. And the next day, everybody was cooking that dish. And I remember a notice in the paper saying the green coriander has run out in Manchester because I had cooked a lemony chicken with green coriander the day before. And so, you know, I think it became very popular in England. And it was cooked by a lot of young people who stayed faithful in the sense that they cooked it for their children and their children cook it for their children. And now it's gone into the next generation. So I've had letters from three generations of people who've eaten from my book. And sometimes they're in the same family. I'd like to actually talk about you as a writer, because part of this, yes, is the cooking and the interpretation of the recipes, but is also about the story around it and how you communicated all of this. And last year republished a story that you wrote for Food and Wine, I believe in 1980 or 1981, which was right near the beginning of the magazine. And the thing is, with the writing of it is both instructional, but also really incredibly evocative. I used to write for all the magazines. I wrote for every single magazine that I could write for. And they were not all food pieces. Like I wrote for the Smithsonian. I wrote for Food and Wine, 
travel and leisure. I wrote for everything possible that I could write for. How did you find your voice? Did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? No, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I thought <laughs> I was an actress. I came to America from England, having trained at RADA, and could not get a single role. They didn't know from Indians. So I said, you know, I can't just do nothing and play the odd Arab in a hula hula skirt or whatever. I couldn't do that. I mean, I did it, but I said I can't live like that. So I said I must do something else. And I remember starting writing about food. The first magazine I wrote for was called Holiday Magazine. And I wrote a piece on food. And from then on, I was just, people kept asking me. And then someone said, why didn't you do a book? And that particular person, I started putting a book together, but that person vanished from my life. And then I didn't know what to do with it. And my friend, Ved Meth, he was at The New Yorker. He suggested that I send the book to a friend of his at Pantheon. And then that person sent it to Judith. And Judith bought it overnight. And I wrote my first book for her. Actually, this leads into the question from Alex Reich. A friend of mine was saying that one of your daughters is apparently a regular at her restaurant, and she gets very excited every time. Oh, which restaurant? Chiquito. Oh, yes. I've been there. (laughs) Oh, I know you have, because Alex has a question for you that she sent to me, but because we were very much geeking out that I was going to get to speak with you. She said, I would sort of say, I know she came with a different career in mind, and knowing how often the food space adopts creatives, I think it's really interesting that instead of going to the performance of restaurants, it is interesting she chose the more home cooking as a domestic act. I would love to know how she sees that or she sees food and books as her business and brand in terms of identity and career. I don't see anything in terms of my identity and career. This is the odd part. Those things don't make me. Something else makes me. And I don't know what that is. It's not what I do that makes me at all. It's what I am. And everybody can define that in any way they want. It has also to do with the way I love my kids and my grandkids and my parents. It has to do with all of us as a family. And that's who I am. I'm part of this big family, Indian family from the north of India. And that's who I am. I don't think my work defines me. I needed to hear that. I fall into that trap a lot. I don't know if this is specifically in how a lot of women are raised, but it feels like we have to achieve certain things and have these markers of success and kind of prove our worth or accomplish all of these things when who you are in the universe is. It's not your accomplishments. It's just who you are as a part of I think, as a part of the family, that you're continuing to be a chain in. Yeah. And how long did it take you to come to that? Well, I think I came to it the second. (laughs) As you asked me, I began thinking about it. It's a really, really interesting thing. I just turned 51 and I'm still trying to turn off the internal accountant every day. Like, did you achieve enough today? I'm a restless workaholic and want to be the best always, in the sense that I'm a perfectionist. It's not that I want to be the best comparatively, but I'm a perfectionist. I love hearing, and I often ask people, especially on this podcast, about how they feel about the word perfect, because it can be both something that is an inspiration to keep going, or it could sort of be a trap because, oh, I'm never going to finish this thing because it's not perfect. It can be a trap, and I've seen it be a trap for other people. But I'm good about that in the sense that I say as perfect as I can make. That's what I can do. I can't 
just go on rewriting and rewriting because that I not like to keep my, I don't always do it, but if I have a date to hand in something, I try and hand it in. I'm curious what you think Indian food is going through so much change in the U.S. right now. And really, there are some absolute powerhouse people working on what it all means right now. How do you feel about what is going on in this evolution? There are two things going. One is people like Chintan Pandya and his gang, or the Sema restaurant, all this Tamaka, all these places. They are saying, which we should have said long ago, to hell with what you want. We're going to give you what we like. And let's hope you like it too. We like it a lot. So that is a new attitude, confrontational slightly, but on the other hand, authentic and real. And I love them. I think they're doing a fantastic job. And I'm so happy that they're there and they're still young and they can carry on with their work. But there is something else going on. I like Indian flavors. I want to mix them with my other flavors. So what we are creating, and our magazines are doing a lot of this, they are putting together what I feel is clever, but undigested, untested aspects of different cuisines into one dish and experimenting with that. And everybody's sort of loving that. So everybody's experimenting, but the results of the experiments we may not know for another hundred years. So there is this hodgepodge of cooking. That is what you see everywhere in every magazine. And I'm slightly questioning where this is all going. I think that's very, very valid. And we do a lot of examination of that ourselves. There is something we've been doing in the magazine for most of the year. Now, we kicked it off in our December, January issue. We're revisiting some of those recipes that made food and wine what we are and your boutique kebab <laughs> recipe was part of that. I always think of this, I, my background's in fine art and I always feel like you have to learn to paint the apple perfectly before you can go and abstract it. <laughs> I mean, I mix and match too in my own way. So at my birthday, the first course was like a dosa. I made, but in the north, we make them out of mung beans. And that's the only thing the children can't spread out on a skillet. They don't know how to do it yet. So I made the dosas. I made the mung bean dosas. But we fill them, not with the dosa kind of filling, but with a North Indian aloo gobi, which is potatoes and cauliflower cooked together, which is in one of my books. And I love aloo gobi. In fact, it was a dish that I got the recipe in England. And we went through all of England, say, just look for the best aloo gobi. And it turned out that one of the crew's mother made the best aloo gobi. So it's her recipe that's in the book, and that's the one I made. So what is it with the reissue of this book? And again, congratulations, a 50-year legacy of a cookbook. That's absolutely incredible. It's such an accomplishment. It's incredible. And what are you hoping people are going to find in this, either people who've loved it for a long time or people who are new to it? Well, a lot of it is the food of Delhi specifically, but there is food from other places as well. And it's my first excitement at the Indian food I grew up with. So that's what you're going to get in that book. I love that. What is the thing you still want to achieve that you're still chasing? I think more acting of the best roles that are to come, but I don't know if I can do it. I'm getting perhaps too old and frail on my feet to do it. But if I get something 
absolutely marvelous. I would love to do it. I'm just so grateful for this today, but also, like I said, sorry to be emotional about this, but you made my life deeper, more brilliant, brighter, and I'm one of millions. I feel incredibly lucky that I get to actually tell you that. And also thank you from my dad. Well, please thank him. I owe him. He taught you how to do this. <laughs> but please know that, you know, you affected his life and my sister and me. And it was funny, my mom, she was not an especially adventurous eater or anything. So sometimes we would sort of tame things down <laughs> or just make them to her. Like I said, complicated relationship with Italian food and stuff like that. But we all appreciated it. So thank you. And thank you. Thank you so, so much for your time. And we will, you know, everybody, please, if you don't already have this book in, in your life, and all of her books, please go and find this now. And how would you like for people to find your work? Because there is so much of it out there. Find what you can get. There's a lot available on YouTube. So wherever you can find it, do. And there are films to see everywhere. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me and being so nice. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Madhur Joffrey. Be sure to follow Tinful Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast, leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. I would really appreciate it. And you can also find us online at foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans. And when I say I... I mean, our fantastic production team. That would be Lottie Le Marie, Jennifer Del Sol, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. Make sure to come back next week for a very special episode with my incredible colleague, Ray Isle. Take care of yourself until the next time. 